1: Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 219 Turning General Arnold. We last left Benedict Arnold in April 1779. He had just bought a mansion in Philadelphia and married the 18-year-old Peggy Shippen. He had resigned the military governorship of Philadelphia as the Supreme Executive Council of Pennsylvania, under President Joseph Reed, had accused him of misusing his office for personal gain. The Continental Congress had already dismissed most of the charges levied by Pennsylvania Much of public opinion seemed to be in Arnold's favor. Many viewed the accusations as one of the army's greatest leaders being taken down by politicians for some minor accounting problems. Arnold was looking forward to a quick court-martial that would acquit him of the remaining charges and allow him to return to duty. Washington scheduled the court-martial hearings to begin on May 1, 1779. The Supreme Executive Council of Pennsylvania, led by President Joseph Reed, had issued the charges and did not want to see them swept under the rug. Reed wrote to Washington, telling him that he did not want a cursory hearing and demanded a delay so that the council could gather its witnesses. Reed further threatened to prevent the Continental Army's use of any state wagons for transport of supplies if the Army did not comply. As a result, Washington delayed the hearing until June 1st. During this time, Arnold traveled to Middlebrook, New Jersey, for the hearings. But just as they were about to get underway, the British attack up the Hudson River that led to the Battle of Stony Point led to yet another delay. Repeated delays would mean the hearings would not actually begin until December 23rd. On May 5th, just a few days after the first delay, Arnold expressed his frustration in a letter to Washington. Arnold knew the political game used to destroy great men. You make accusations, then you let those accusations hang over them for months or even years without clearing them up. Arnold had to look no further than a guest in his own home, Silas Dean, for an example of this. Dean had been fighting with Congress for more than a year to clear his name and with no end in sight. Dean would leave later that year, sailing for France at his own expense, in a futile attempt to find sufficient paperwork regarding his expenses that would satisfy Congress. Arnold saw how Dean's political enemies had cut him down with innuendo, rumors, and baseless accusations in the press, without any real effort to resolve the matter. It had destroyed Dean's reputation and career. Arnold worried that he was headed down that very same path. In addition to his reputation, Arnold had growing money problems. Following his resignation as military governor of Pennsylvania, Arnold had no income opportunities beyond the base pay of Continental paper money that he received as a major general. He had just purchased a mansion for his bride, heavily mortgaged, and had to rent a second house since the minister of Spain was still living in the home that he had just purchased. Arnold's new wife came from a wealthy home and expected to live a lifestyle that came at a hefty cost. Over the summer, Arnold's sister, Hannah, came to Philadelphia with his three sons, ages 7 through 11. They also moved into Arnold's house, making it a pretty crowded place. The children got into trouble and did not get along well with their new stepmother. His oldest child had gotten in trouble with the town watch. Eventually, Arnold decided to ship the three boys off to boarding school in Baltimore, incurring another expense that he could not afford. Peggy also became pregnant, meaning an even larger family to support. Arnold found it difficult to engage in any trade in Philadelphia. No one wanted to enter into business with him while the Supreme Executive Council was breathing down his neck. Local merchants knew that a partnership with Arnold would only bring more government scrutiny on themselves. While he had been military governor, Arnold made a secret deal with Gideon Olmstead to help him win the case against Pennsylvania over the captured sloop active, which I discussed back in Episode 209. Arnold had hoped that his share of the prize money from that case would help to keep him solvent. And not only did the case not settle, Arnold had to spend another £5,000 sterling on Olmstead and his shipmates in order to keep them from selling even more shares in the collection effort. Arnold had to do this because he did not want word to get around to more people about his deal, especially while his court-martial was still pending. This deal would appear to the public as part of the corruption for personal benefit that he was trying to fight. If Olmstead took on more partners, they would have to disclose the deal with Arnold. Therefore, the agreement only continued to cost Arnold more money, if only to keep it quiet. As his financial situation became more desperate, Arnold submitted a bill for £5,000 sterling for the nine months that he had served as military governor and said that he needed to be paid immediately in order to cover expenses until he was reinstated to a new command. The chairman of the Treasury Board argued that the amount Arnold sought was too high. Congress appointed a special committee to examine the matter. They offered to pay Arnold about half of what he had requested and to pay in continental paper, meaning that he would be getting about 10% of what he requested. Arnold refused to accept the settlement, Meaning that he got nothing while the committee put the claim on hold for further auditing. While he was facing all these troubles in the spring of 1779, Arnold was stewing about his delayed hearing and his money problems. A young man asked to speak with him privately at his home. The man, who appeared in civilian clothing, introduced himself as Christopher Hell of the Royal Navy. Hell had attempted to deliver a peace proposal from the Carlisle Commission in October of 1778. As his ship sailed up the Delaware under a flag of truce, it crashed and wrecked, with several of the crew killed. Lieutenant Hell escaped the wreck, only to be captured several days later by local militia. Despite the fact that Hell was under a flag of truce, Congress held him as a prisoner of war after passing a rule that anyone who attempted to release seditious materials would be held regardless of any flag of truce. The fact that Congress passed this law about a week after Hell was captured, and the fact that an enemy officer delivering a peace proposal to Congress should not be considered sedition, did not seem to help Hell's case. In any event, Hell had been given parole and was living in Philadelphia for the past six months. On his visit to see Arnold, Hell was not there to discuss any of his personal situation. After introducing himself and trying to make a bit of small talk, Hell produced a sealed envelope, placing the envelope on Arnold's desk. Hell told the general, You know as well as I do, General, that both sides are weary of this long war. What is needed, sir, is a man of decision, someone with character and power to step forward and bring this tragic conflict to an end. With that, Hell turned and took his leave. The note was from Colonel Beverly Robinson of New York. Robinson was the son of former Virginia Speaker John Robinson, whose death in 1766 had caused a financial scandal that I addressed way back in Episode 25. Prior to that, Beverly had been married and moved to New York where he owned a large estate. Robinson had been friends with Washington when the two men were younger. Washington even visited Robinson on several occasions before the war. And, according to some accounts, Washington even had a crush on Robinson's sister-in-law, Mary Phillips. When the British occupied New York, Robinson threw in with the Loyalists. He raised a loyal American regiment and became a colonel. In 1779, Colonel Robinson was serving in New York under General Sir Henry Clinton. The letter spoke in generalities about the horror and futility of the war. It suggested that an American general, who would be greatly rewarded if he could be part of an effort to end the war and help reestablish the king's rule over the colonies. The letter gave no specific proposal and did not suggest that Arnold simply switch sides and join the British Army. Rather, this was part of a larger effort to try to turn some American leaders, who might be able to sway public opinion, in favor of a negotiated peace and return to colonial status. British intelligence was well aware of Arnold's money problems his resignation as military commander of Philadelphia, and his ongoing legal battle in Pennsylvania. It saw this as an opportunity to approach one of the Continental Army's top generals and perhaps convince him to lead his country back to the king's authority. Arnold was hardly the first prominent leader to be approached. The British had made a concerted effort to turn opinion leaders to their side. This was nothing new. Kings back in England often stayed in power during difficult times through offers of money, land, and titles. Rewarding powerful men for loyalty and punishing opponents brutally was the key to any monarch's survival. Efforts in America tried to follow this same gambit. I've already discussed in earlier episodes efforts to get Commodore John Barry to switch sides, I have also mentioned attempted bribes to members of Congress, including Robert Morris, Francis Dana, and Arnold's rival in Philadelphia, Joseph Reed. All of these men turned down these overtures and made them public very quickly. Unlike those other men, General Arnold did not immediately reject or expose the offer. For the prior year, Arnold had been hanging out in Tory social circles around Philadelphia. That is what in fact, incurred the wrath of the radicals. The people in Arnold's social circle had long believed that permanent independence from a power such as Britain was an impossibility. At some point, there was going to be a negotiated peace. America simply was not powerful enough nor united enough to govern itself. From their view, taking down a top general like Arnold on minor ethics charges or cheating him out of compensation were some of the many examples of why the current leadership was incapable of maintaining a government. Arnold's experience with the Continental Congress and state governments over the years supported this argument. It made him susceptible to the idea that government lacked the maturity and experience to maintain a stable power structure, and that, absent a return of the king's peace, the end result would be chaos and civil war, eventually followed by a reinstatement of the king at some later time. An even worse scenario would be to come under the control of the king of France, who many colonists despised and distrusted even more than King George. France did not have the tradition of personal liberties that Americans were fighting to sustain. Arnold had carried a lifelong hatred of the French for the massacre of his friends and neighbors at Fort William Henry during the French and Indian War. Arnold's inner thoughts at this time are not recorded, we can only speculate on what combination of Tory defeatism, anger at the charges against him, and his continued money problems all weighed on Arnold as he read Robinson's note. There is some evidence that Arnold discussed the matter with his new wife Peggy. According to one account, Peggy admitted to a friend that she had encouraged her husband to change sides and helped introduce him to contacts that made continued negotiation with the British leadership possible. Possibly through Peggy or through others in the ship and family, Arnold soon contacted Joseph Stansbury, a suspected loyalist. Stansbury had only immigrated to Philadelphia from London a decade earlier. He ran a China shop. And was also known for writing humorous and satirical songs, although he expressed sympathy with many of the early colonial protests, he opposed independence and was imprisoned by the patriots for part of seventeen seventy six for singing "God Save the King" at a party in his home during the British occupation of Philadelphia. Stansbury served in several minor roles that supported the British Army after the British evacuation. Stansbury was one of those Loyalists who decided to take his chances in Philadelphia. He signed an oath of allegiance to Pennsylvania, moved out of town to live with relatives in Morristown, New Jersey, and kept his head down. Despite his newly professed loyalty, many people, including Arnold, believed that he still had contacts with the British Army in New York. He frequently visited Philadelphia on business and was also able to travel to New York. Within days of Arnold receiving Robinson's letter, Stansbury traveled to New York City, where he met with Major John Andre. The two men discussed Arnold's willingness to play ball if they could work out acceptable arrangements. Andre gave Arnold the codename Monk, which was a reference to George Monk, the first Duke of Albemarle. General Monk had been a Scottish military leader during the English Civil War a century earlier. Monk had supported Oliver Cromwell during the era of the Protectorate. However, when Charles II returned to Britain to take the throne, Monk accepted an offer from Charles and helped overthrow Cromwell's son, Richard, and restored the House of Stuart to the throne. For his services, Monk was absolved of his former treason and richly rewarded by King Charles II, including a peerage and a generous pension. I think it's easy to see how the British saw or hoped there would be some parallel between Monk's behavior, first betraying his king and then being a key turning point in bringing the king back into power, and what they were hoping that Arnold would do for them in the coming year. By this time, Major Andre had taken a position as Deputy Adjutant General under Henry Clinton and had been put in charge of Britain's secret service in America, at the recommendation of André's commander, General Charles Gray. His new role primarily focused on intelligence and handling spies. André also knew Arnold's wife Peggy from his time in Philadelphia. Although some modern speculation that the two were linked romantically, anything beyond superficial flirtations seems to be without evidence. Arnold, though, began a correspondence with both Benedict and Peggy Arnold. He adopted the pseudonym John Anderson, a merchant. He would often write letters that appeared to be about business deals, but which had coded messages, including lines in invisible ink, to avoid detection. Much of the correspondence that took place between Andre and Stansberry, who would then relay the messages to Arnold. Once he established communications with Arnold, Andre began discussions with General Clinton. Although Andre was the correspondent, he made clear that Clinton was making the decisions about how to proceed. At the outset, Andre wanted Arnold to provide intelligence, troop movements, the condition of the army, or other details that would be helpful. Not only would this be helpful to the British, it also provided verifiable proof that Arnold was truly planning to break with the Patriots. It also put General Arnold in a position where he was very clearly committing a little treason and could not back out of it very easily. Although Stansbury told Andre at their first meeting that Arnold had made pretty clear that he was prepared to defect and join the British, Andre wanted to make the best use of this valuable asset. Over the next few months, Arnold would provide intelligence. Arnold provided information about Washington moving his army up the Hudson Valley. He also reported that the Americans would not expend too many resources to defend Charleston, South Carolina, if the British attacked there. The men also discussed the terms of Arnold's defection. Arnold wanted compensation for all the property that he would lose. Patriot governments would undoubtedly seize his home and other property. He also wanted compensation for the debts that he still believed the Continental Congress owed to him. He wanted a commission as a major general in the British Army with full pay and benefits. All of these terms were under discussion. Andre informed Arnold that if he were able to surrender an entire army or an important position as part of his defection, that could result in a greater reward. He suggested that Arnold try to get command of an important post. Later that summer, Arnold was asking for assurances that the British did not plan to give up on winning the war. Arnold feared that after he switched sides, the British might pull out of America entirely. Andre was not willing to provide detailed information about British plans. He did not say so, but there must have been a fear that Arnold could be working as a double agent. The two men suggested several ways Arnold might continue to assist the British without defecting. One was for Arnold to take command of an army, lead it into a trap that could be captured. The British were still interested in the return of Burgoyne's Convention Army that was being held as prisoners. So if the British held a similarly sized army to exchange, that might move along the process. If Arnold gave up this army, he might then even be returned to the Continentals with his fellow prisoners as part of the exchange and no one be the wiser to his treasonous activity. As a reward, Arnold might receive a cash payment of ten to 12,000 guineas. Nothing seemed to come of the correspondence beyond some general intelligence that Arnold provided about the positions of their armies, their numbers, and their conditions. By the end of August 1779, the correspondence seemed to come to an end. Arnold may have been looking for an opportunity to provide a valuable prize for the British. André made clear that the surrender of an entire army would mean more money. Arnold knew that he would not get a command until the court-martial cleared him of any wrongdoing. So Arnold was more eager than ever to get that court-martial behind him. Despite his wishes, the schedule for a hearing would continue to be delayed. All of the plans seemed to go on hold until Arnold received a new command, one that the British would value greatly. Both sides put their discussions on hold until that could happen. Those opportunities would not come until the following year. The Next week, we're going to return to South Carolina... Where General Benjamin Lincoln continued his efforts to prevent the British Army in Georgia from marching north.
0: Podcasters like Mike never know who will be inspired by their message. I'm Tracy Lawson, an author and historian. I once heard a podcaster comment, we rarely see history from a woman's point of view, and decided, hey, I'm a writer. I should do something about that. So I did. My novel, Answering Liberty's Call, Anna Stone's Daring Ride to Valley Forge, is based on a true story about my sixth great-grandmother and has been called a grand and rollicking revolutionary adventure. While on a solo horseback journey to Valley Forge with supplies for her soldier husband, Anna takes on the responsibility of delivering an urgent message to General Washington. But it's not long before a mysterious man is hot on her trail and trying to steal the letter. Can Anna outwit him and make it safely to the picket line? A version of Anna's story for elementary school kids called Revolutionary Anna is the first book in my Liberty Bells series for young readers. Liberty Bells books feature female patriots who advanced the cause of liberty and they're a great way to get kids hyped up about America 250 which is just around the corner. My books are available in print and ebook on Amazon. For listeners of the American Revolution podcast, I'm offering 15% off personalized signed copies of books ordered through my website, tracylawsonbooks.com. That's T R A C Y L A W S O N books.com.
1: Use the promo code AMREVPODCAST. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution podcast after show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter Mike Hager. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it with an ongoing pledge of as little as $2 per month. It helps me to keep this podcast freely available for those who cannot. Thanks also to Michael McKenna and Nicholas Landry who provided one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. If you don't want to make an ongoing pledge, I really do appreciate one-time gifts as well. As always, there are links to both PayPal, Venmo, and other options on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Now, this week. Benedict Arnold began taking his first steps toward betraying the Patriot cause. I've heard arguments that his court-martial result and the reprimand he received from General Washington as a result was the last straw that really pushed Arnold into joining the British. However, I think today's episode made clear that Arnold had made his decision months before he reached his court-martial. It's easy to condemn Arnold for his treason, but the more interesting question for me is, What would drive a man who already put forward his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor to the cause to throw all that away? It couldn't simply be greed, as many of Arnold's detractors have claimed. If all Arnold wanted was money throughout his life, why did he become a general in the first place? Why not captain a privateer ship? It seems to me that Arnold must have decided that the Patriot cause was ultimately doomed and that the British were going to win. It seems clear that Arnold was, of course, putting his personal interests ahead of the country. This was not something that Europeans would find unusual. I highlighted Andre's use of George Monk as an analogous story. In civil wars and domestic insurrections, European landed gentry often hedged their bets and switched sides when it benefited them. After all, they had no real ideological reasons to back a king other than self-interest. The American cause, though, was different. People were fighting more for an idea than for personal power. So when someone like Arnold turned away from that ideal, it made people quite understandably shocked and appalled. But as I pointed out, trying to turn rebels was standard practice for the British government. They'd been doing it for centuries. If you want to read more about this, my book recommendation this week is The Secret History of the American Revolution, by Carl Van Doren. This book covers Arnold's defection, but it also goes into other details about British intelligence efforts in America. It's an older book, first published in 1941. Van Doren, of course, was an early 20th century writer, professor, and book critic. I think the book should be in the public domain, but the copy that exists on archive.org is still listed as borrow only. Despite the fact that it's an 80-year-old book, I really think it's worth reading. You can use the link I've provided to buy the book or just read it on archive.org. Much of Van Doren's research for the book was based on the papers of General Sir Henry Clinton, which are housed at the University of Michigan. And that brings me to my online recommendation for the week. The William Clements Library at the University of Michigan. The library was founded nearly a century ago when Clements donated his rare books library to the school. Among its works are some really unique papers from the American Revolution. The library is still working on digitizing much of it and putting it online, but it is a good and growing resource for any researcher. As always, I've included a link on my website, www amrevpodcast.com. My question this week comes from Madison Henderson, who asks, What kind of teeth did George Washington have? Well, Madison, we all know Washington famously had bad teeth. There's a myth that he used wooden teeth as a replacement, and as far as I can tell, there's no truth to that. There's never been any evidence that he really used wooden teeth although some have speculated that his use of tobacco and wine may have stained some of his teeth to look that way. Washington had bad teeth his whole life, and some of his behavior may have contributed to that. I've read that he used calomel in his mouth, which tends to wear down the teeth. He also brushed his teeth quite a bit, but unfortunately the toothpaste that was used at the time had a very hard grate to it and tended to wear down the enamel on the outside of the teeth. So despite his best efforts, uh, and probably his bad genes as well, he started losing teeth at a very young age. Washington, of course, kept records of all his financial costs, which include his dental costs. So that gives us some information about where he was with his denture situation. He had his first tooth pulled at age 24 because of the pain it was causing him and by the time of his inauguration as president, he only had one natural tooth left, and he lost that one during the final year of his administration. As I said, he did brush his teeth regularly and did whatever he could to protect his teeth, but he continued to suffer terrible tooth pain and regularly had to have teeth extracted throughout his adult life. As a result, Washington had quite a few sets of dentures made over his lifetime. He tried having wired dentures that would connect to his remaining teeth. He also kept some of his pulled teeth for use in future dentures. The false teeth themselves were made from ivory or animal teeth. Some may have been horse teeth that were filed down to human size. There are also records in his purchasing human teeth from, as he calls them, Negroes. Presumably these were slaves, and the teeth may have been used in dentures he may have also attempted an 18th century technique known as a tooth transfer. This process involved pulling a bad tooth. While the bloody gap in the mouth was still open and raw, the dentist would take a good tooth from someone else and jam it into that hole, hoping that the gum would heal around it and hold the new tooth in place. This, unfortunately, rarely worked. But when they tried, they had to have a good tooth pulled at the same time that the bad tooth was pulled. So this leads to some of the speculation that he may have paid slaves to donate teeth to that effort. Denture work at the time was relatively crude. Uh, They didn't have plastics or glues that are used today. Instead, there was a frame that was made out of tin, copper, lead, or gold. False teeth were often wired into place and held in these metal frames. There are records of him sending molds of his mouth to dentists for construction of custom dentures but how good the ultimate product was in fitting with his teeth is probably iffy. While he was commander of the Continental Army, Washington consulted with a French dentist who was considered one of the top men in the field. He received several sets of dentures as gifts as well as the ones he purchased. Despite his wealth and prominence, the technology at the time simply was not satisfactory. The result was that he almost continually suffered from toothaches, mouth pain, and other abscesses, and had to deal with bad dentures throughout his adult life. Because of the danger of his dentures falling out while talking or eating, Washington is often portrayed as having clenched lips, perhaps always worried about what would happen when he opened his mouth. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please email me at mtroy.history, at gmail.com, or reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or other social media. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.